Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Brackish Fly. Today we've got a great guest, literally the guy that wrote the book on red-eye bass fishing. And I'm not kidding. <laughs> We're going to get into that a little bit. I've got Mr. Matt Lewis on the phone with me. And uh, I think this is episode five of season two of the Brackish Fly. And we're just going to jump right on in and talk red-eye fishing. So uh, how you doing, Matt? Doing well. Doing well. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely, man. So one of my goals, uh, I've had it for the past couple of years. I want to do the uh, the Black Bass um the black bass slam on fly and um mm-hmm. naturally when i started researching red eye bass i stumbled upon your book um which is on my reading list uh for next year and uh i'm excited about having you on man to talk a little red eye fishing so yeah i'll, I'll talk red eye to anybody that'll listen so um <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah hopefully this won't wind up being a two-hour podcast but um if it yeah, is i'm sure it'll be great <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> so um so how'd you land on on red eye like what specifically about the red eye bass uh do you like them oh well, i'm sorry let's back up i want to jump right into it okay for anybody that don't know who you are can you give me like just a 30 second rundown of who matt lewis is for anybody that don't know yeah so i'm uh well now i'm currently a uh a graduate student again later in life at auburn university um working on my phd actually studying red-eye bass um more from a genetic perspective but still you know kind of in the bass Mm -hmm. world um just with a specific focus on red-eye bass and you know when we when we get into how i got into red-eye bass i'm sure you know you'll you'll get that full story but yeah um but yeah so i i'm a scientist um and i you know my downtime fun time is getting to go fly fishing i've got two small kids i'm married so you know the stress from being a dad with young kids and a phd student you know all that it's it's nice to get away and and go fly fish so yeah, it sounds like you got a full plate <laughs> up and over. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, um, so red eye bass. How did you land on that particular species, or subspecies, or how? You're the scientist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's uh, well, it's long story. So I I worked in um, I worked in human genetics after after uh, finishing my master's um at auburn back in 2010 um i worked in human genetics for about 10 years doing cancer research for five years up in huntsville and then i moved to uab um, in the neurology department and was working on parkinson's disease and throughout those you know that whole period of time i was really into to fly fishing um Mm -hmm. and i started out kind of driving up to the North Carolina, Tennessee mountains, pursuing brook trout. Um, because I've always had this, you know, some may call it a curse to me. I think it's just a good, you know, clarity to have when uh, enjoying outdoor pursuits, but I always had this purity scale with anything I, I pursue and, you know, fishing and stock trout ponds and things like that just didn't do it for me. It was the, 
equivalent of shooting a high fence deer or something like that. Yeah. I just, I didn't think it was very sporting. And so I've always kind of had this, you know, preference for pursuing native fish and their native habitat. Mm-hmm. It's just the overarching theme. So, um, brook trout up in the mountains where they're native Southern Appalachia, you know, that, that's what I really enjoyed doing because it was just the country up there was so beautiful. You got way off the, the beaten trail, so to speak. I mean, literally, um, in pursuit of these fish and just the, you know, wet waiting for them, climbing waterfalls, you know, just immersing yourself into the stream in order to catch them. It was just such an intimate encounter. Um, the whole experience, you know, driving there, hiking to the places, seeing these beautiful fish, um, you know, camping out, cooking steaks over the campfire. I mean, just the whole, the whole thing was just, it resonated with me. Um, and so as I, you know, got older, um, was married and, you know, started having kids. It's like, I I can't go to North Carolina and Tennessee every single weekend. Mm -hmm. Um, so I started looking for things to, to do closer to home. I mean, I always, you know, fish and things like that, but, you know, aside from panfish and largemouth, I didn't really know what else I could pursue. And a, a buddy of mine told me, you know, you should catch red eye bass. You're so brook trout crazy. I can't believe you, you don't fish for red eye bass. And I was like, what are you talking about? I've never even heard of them. Uh, growing up in South Alabama, we didn't have them down there. So, yeah. um, I, you know, took him up on his offer to, you know, come, come do a float with him and, and, um, and catch those fish. There was actually Josh Tidwell on, uh, he yeah. runs big wheels outfitters on big wheels Creek, uh, that, that actually turned me on to this. And so, you know, after that first fish, I was just completely hooked. Um, and so the next thing I wanted to do was catch them somewhere else. And then, you know, that led me to want to know, well, where all can I catch them? And, mm-hmm. you know, it just kind of grew from there. Um, and at that point I had, I was kind of frustrated that I couldn't find anything out about these fish. I had such an appetite, you know, for knowledge yeah. about these fish where, you know, where, where they exist, what do they eat? Like, why don't we know more about them? And so I had written a couple of articles for, you know, plot fishing magazines and stuff like that. And just kept kind of compiling information and and being a scientist, I kind of could also go to the scientific literature and kind of, you know, distill down the knowledge from that angle as well. Um, and I kind of started building this, I don't know, just, uh, data of, you know, scientific literature as well as, you know, my own time on the water and talking to people and, um, I realized I had a lot more information than I, I could get in one article. And I started toying with the idea of writing a book and, you know, just things just kind of progressed naturally from there. And two years later, I released the book and, you know, after doing that, I completely changed careers from human genetics to go back and pursue a PhD in fisheries genetics. And, you know, the, the rest they say is history. <laughs> wow. Um, so you, when you got into red eye, there wasn't a lot of information about the fish and about what they ate. So you kind of had to compile it yourself. Um, you, you you may appreciate this. There's a fish that I've been chasing on flower. Well, anything. And it's a, it's a sharp fin chub sucker. And the lack of information is absolutely maddening. 
Like there's nothing right. about what they eat. So, and this is, this is kind of my approach to it. I've decided that I'm going to net one uh, and I've got a stomach mm-hmm. pump. I'm going to try to see what they eat myself and go from there and see if I can. Cause I've tried nymphs, man. I've tried crawfish. Like I've tried all these different things and these fish are just like not, not going for it. So yeah, <laughs> everybody, everybody thinks I'm crazy. Like, man, that's a, that's a sucker fish that you're trying to catch. But they're, I mean, they've, they've got me obsessed and it sounds like you're exactly well, yeah. the same way with the red eye. Exactly. I mean, it takes, you know, I tell people it takes passion and hard work to really do anything and you know for me you know that was just this this you know burning desire to to know these things and Mm -hmm. and realize that you know i wasn't going to know them unless i find them out um i'm sure that's kind of i'm sure the end results of that is extremely rewarding because of the work you have to go through to get the information oh absolutely and you know i stepped into you know, if you want to talk about this now or later or not mm-hmm. at all, that's fine. But, you know, there's this idea that um, in 2013, red-eye bass were, were formally split, described in science, um, as five different species. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're not subspecies. They're not, you know, they're actual species. So just like a large mouth is a different species than a small mouth. Yep. A red-eye bass from the Cahaba River is a different species than the red-eye bass from the Coosa River. Um, and so there's still a lot of doubt in, in the scientific community, even though those were formally described just based on the way that they were described and the, you know, small sample size and things like that. So there's still a lot of questions that remain like, are these really different species or are they just subspecies? And, and so a lot of the work that I'm doing is, is really getting to kind of answer that question. Mm-hmm. And at least from the preliminary work that we've done, which is, you know, pretty substantial genetic work with a very large sample size, you know, we, we do see that they are genetically different enough to be, you know, unique species. Um, so we're kind of getting to confirm that, which is, is kind of cool. And then also just learning about, you know, where these fish are, you know, where are the pure populations of these fish located and where are they hybridizing with their native Alabama bass mm-hmm. um, so that we can better understand, you know, why are these fish hybridizing? Is it that humans are causing? Um, because all that's, all that information is going to be, you know, just crucial in developing some sort of long-term, you know, management or conservation plan for these, these fish. So it, yeah, it's extremely rewarding that I get to work on this and even more so that, you know, I'm basically marrying my passion of, um, you know, fly fishing pursuits with my career. Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, everything I do is, is for red eye bass, whether it's for fun or for work. So it's, <laughs> yeah, it's been a, it's been a fun ride. So how pure are the, the populations of red eye out there? I know that there's quite a bit of hybridization with this, with the Alabama bass. Uh, is that right. going to be an issue in the future? I think so. I mean, so what we, what we know right now, um, so we've only really surveyed the Tallapoosa River system and the um, Black Warrior River system. We've done mm-hmm. a, we've done some work in the Cahaba, but I'm still running that those samples to to finish that up. But um, what we know from just those surveys so far, the Tallapoosa River system, you know, there are a couple of streams where we detected hybrids between Alabama bass and red eye bass, but overall, 
you know, most of those streams were made up of mostly pure red eye bass or Calapusa bass. So that was a good sign, yeah. which also wasn't surprising because that stream has such little human disturbance. I mean, it's mostly Alabama power land and hunting mm-hmm. land, you know, surrounding, surrounding the river. So there's not a lot of development and, you know, agriculture and just all the stuff you have to deal with in other places. Um, so the black warrior river is a much different story. There's so much development and, you know, issues with, um, you know, urbanization and poor land use practices and wastewater discharge. And just, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And and surprisingly or not surprisingly, I guess, hybridization is way more common there. Um, Almost, you know, kind of a mirror image of what we see in the Tallapoosa where we really only have a few pure populations in that, that system, which is obviously alarming and concerning. Um, So now we're trying to, you know, once we describe like, Hey, there's pure populations here, there's hybridizing populations here, you know, there's way more hybridized populations than pure populations. So the next question is going to be understanding well, why are we seeing that? And then the third final question hopefully will be, well, what do we do about it? Um, and so I was, I was going to ask you, do you have any theories on why they're hybridizing in more urban areas and more developed areas? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, there's a lot of evidence in the literature with particularly salmonids, you know, that's, that's what, you know, the bulk of fisheries research is on, you know, rainbow trout or, you know, something like that, because that's what's economically (laughs) and, and, and important for fly fishers and recreation, things like that. So the bulk of the research in fisheries is, is done in that realm as far as recreation goes. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of evidence that, you know, obviously land use or, or human disturbances. So this can be anything from, you know, stripping away all the trees on a river bank that leads to erosion, which increases sedimentation, you know, all mm-hmm. those kind of things that change the habitat that was naturally there. Um, those things have increased hybridization. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's very, it's as simple as, you know, if a fish uses visual cues for species recognition during, you know, mating season or whatever, and then the water's really turbid because, you know, there's been a lot of rain and the stream, you know, bank areas are not well protected to prevent erosion, things like that. So there's sedimentation, turbidity, or just, you know, someone's driving through the creek and it's their own personal mudding hole or what, you know, whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. An increase in turbidity could could make it where those fish can't recognize one another. They can't recognize their own species. So, you know, if you have an Alabama bass and a, a red eye bass in a stream, and you know they their spawning times overlap, um, the way they spawn overlaps. You know, they the, the females lay eggs, the male furs, fertilizes them, so it's external fertilization. So, you can see where you know that kind of stuff could happen if you talk about season after season after season and those hybrid fish migrate and mate with other, you know, mm-hmm. you can see where it could become a big problem. Um, and so my theory, my hypothesis is that, you know, human disturbance is basically, you know, increasing or driving hybridization between these native fish. Um, and we have the data, I think, to really kind of start asking 
that question and trying to answer that question. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of you know, doing it. Doing it, yeah. What do you think are some like actionable steps that um, fly fishermen can take to help preserve the natural population or the natural uh, genetics of red eye? Um, I know we're getting deep say, in here, man, but <laughs> I, no, I really, I, I I, say, I'm with you on keeping native species in native waters. I think the biggest thing is just, you know, an education and understanding and awareness aspect of, you know, don't move fish. I don't think that fly mm-hmm. fishermen do that as much um, right. as conventional fishermen, or at least not historically, but you know, that's the biggest thing is, I mean, all of these situations, not in, not in the mobile basin where I'm talking about, but in other issues where we're having, you know, problems with Alabama bass, it's all been angler introductions. Um, and, and Georgia's experiencing a lot of this, North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, and you know, every year it, it kind of moves further and further up the East coast that we realize Alabama bass have invaded you know and they're not getting in their truck and driving up there it's anglers moving them um so so that's one thing is just you know educating maybe your friends or people you talk to you know Mm -hmm. don't move fish the other thing is is probably you know get involved in some sort of conservation organization um i chair an organization here in alabama uh native fish coalition so Mm -hmm. national nonprofit. Um, kind of dedicated to what we talked about, you know, protecting the the environment for native fish and native fish. Um, so we're not a we're not a game fish organization. We're not a fishing organization. It is strictly a native fish organization. Um, so supporting organizations like that, volunteering with those, um, you know, just local river keepers. You know, they do a lot of work in kind of alerting you know, pollution problems and kind of holding the, the parties responsible for those, you know, pollution acts, um, holding them responsible. So, I mean, there's a lot of ways to get involved. Um, but those are probably the, the easiest and, and most, you know, have the biggest impact, at least immediately. It's just, just people caring, you know, yeah. showing that they care. Okay. Uh, we're running up on a break and we'll be right back. Okay, so so red-eye bass are each their own individual species. Do you refer to the whole group as red-eye bass, or how does that work? <laughs> That's the big question. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I've actually had a lot of issues with this, just, you know, within the scientific community. Uh, a couple of different papers that I've published on them. Mm-hmm. The first paper, I was like, well, you know, they're published as this, this, this. So I referred to them as Kusa bass, warrior bass, and however they're described. Mm-hmm. And a reviewer came back and said, well, you know, American Fisheries Society doesn't recognize these species names. So, they're, you know, they just recognize red-eye bass. And I'm like, okay, this is confusing. So then I yeah. had to go back and change every instance in that paper where I mentioned Kusa bass or whatever and say, red-eye bass from the Kusa River system, red-eye bass from the Warrior River system. So, mm-hmm. you know, the next paper I wrote, I um, just said, you know, I'm going to go ahead and nip it in the bud this time and just refer to them all as red-eye bass from whatever river system. Well, then a reviewer came back and said, you know, weren't these described as different species? Isn't there Kusa bass? And I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. What, what do you want me to call them? So, I mean, that's the big question. Um, I, I don't think we're going to 
really know. I mean, the way I tell people is that, you know, there, we refer to it as kind of a red eye bass complex or species complex because, mm-hmm. you know, there's this umbrella of red eye bass and underneath that you've got red eye bass from the Cahaba River, Talapusha, Cusa, Black Warrior, Chattahoochee, Altamaha, and Savannah. So there's seven mm-hmm. total described or proposed species. Um, and one of and them so, is just the just red eye bass, right? Right. So the Coosa River system, red eye bass or, or, or red eye bass, those were the, you know, that, that still has the name red eye bass. So if mm-hmm. you refer to red eye bass, a lot of people think you're, you know, talking about them, but it gets infinitely more confusing because people used to call shoal bass red eye. <laughs> yeah. And so you talk to some people and they think you're talking about shoal bass, yeah. you talk to other people. They think you're talking about rock bass because people call rock bass red eye a lot of times. Goggle eye down and here, man. People, <laughs> it, yeah. And it's, it, it's really the upper Tennessee, like you get North Carolina, Virginia, they call, they call them red eye. Yeah. Um, and I, and I always have to tell people like, no, that's a panfish, totally different. Yeah. You know, not even the same ballpark. Um, but then you catch people catch, you know, juvenile smallmouth and Alabama bass and they'll have a, a red eye and people mm-hmm. just see that red eye and think that's a red eye. And it's like, you know, I wish people would just ignore the eye color. Cause that means absolutely nothing. It can really, change as far as, right. The temperature or stress can change that within seconds, um, mm-hmm. in any species of black bass. So, I mean, that's probably the worst thing to go on is if you're trying to identify, you know, a certain bass from another. Yeah, crazy enough with with the red eye, I pulled a largemouth out of a out of Magnolia River in Alabama just the other day, and his eye was just solid red. And then the first picture I took, his eye was red. Second picture was black. So just right. seeing it that quick change, and the air temperature was kind of cold, so I'm sure it was the the temperature change that that <laughs> that had that. But right. it was it was pretty pretty interesting interesting to see the change that fast. Um, yeah. and how you can't just go on eye color or even even some of the scale colors and the patterns because uh, all of that changes. Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, you know, we look at, you know, differences between some of the red eye species, you know, aside from different color colorations and variations in colorations, mm-hmm. you get, you know, these different vertical blotch patterns along yep. the, the lateral line. And, those also change based on what environment they're in and based on stress and other things. So like, you know, you may catch one as soon as you pull it out of the water, you look at it like, Oh wow. Look at these very distinct splotches. And then, you know, you put it down and you try to get your camera out take a picture and they're gone. Yeah. It just looks like a a solid chameleon (laughs) green fish or something. Yeah. And you're just like, where did those go? Yeah. Um, And so it makes it hard when you're trying to document, these fish that you catch and, and take pictures of their, you know, species, you know, like reference uh, photos for that species and, you know, it changes so fast. It's, it's really hard to kind of keep track of all that. So have you, have you developed a system to kind of document those um, different patterns and splotches? Uh, do you keep the fish in the water to maybe preserve the way they look longer? Yeah. I mean, I don't do a whole lot of that because I'm, geneticist so i don't get into counting scales or you know anything like that but as far as getting photos to go along with a fish that i may collect you know dna sample from um 
Typically, yeah, we, I mean, we try to photograph it as soon as possible yeah. upon collecting it. And, um, you know, that that's the best we can do because, you know, you're looking at, you know, volume over trying to kind of dance this fine line between volume and, and quality. Yeah. Um, and so I, I've had really good luck with, with doing that, just photographing them as soon as they come out of the water, mm-hmm. you know, don't put them in a holding tank and wait and, you know, do it later. Just go ahead and do it right then. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's been my best. And the fish are so much, so much more, you know, uh, beautiful to look at when they're coming right out of the water. Like they're all lit up, man. It's just absolutely, yeah. I, there's nothing that I hate seeing more than like a fish with grass stuck all over it, and like it's just it mm-hmm. looks stressed. <laughs> it just drives me nuts, man, with the fish handling and whatnot. Um, yeah, you're like, did you kick that across the bank before you picked it up? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What's that streak on it? Mud? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, as far as what, what these fish eat, and is there any difference uh, that you're seeing between the species? You know, no one's no one's ever looked at that formally. Um, what little bit of research that's out there, um, you know, they look at things like, Red-eye bass eat a lot of um, aquatic and terrestrial insects. Mm-hmm. But those studies were carried out really only in the months where those two things are, are available in abundance. So, you know, you, you kind of got to look at everything with a, a right. fine-tooth uh, comb, I guess. And so, you know, if, if, if you and I were, you know, during a period where watermelon's available and we're eating a lot of watermelon, that doesn't mean like that's the, that's all we eat. That's just right. what's available at that time. And that's kind of how they are. I mean, they're like most bass, they're opportunistic feeders. Mm-hmm. And so I think whatever's available at that time, or if something comes by them, they're not going to pass it up. But I mean, like most bass, they, they certainly eat a lot of crayfish. I mean, that's a high, um, high calorie item that's certainly in the, the stomach of a lot of red eye bass that are collected. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there also is a lot of, you know, insects and insect larvae. So, um, I think there's some truth to the fact that they probably eat a lot of those type things. And I mean, you got to look at, you know, they live in these small streams where there's a lot of flow, which is, you know, kind of conducive to, you know, insect life and, and having a lot of aquatic insects and um, terrestrial insects in the summertime. So, I, I mean, I think there's some truth to the fact that they eat a lot of insects, but also, you know, we've we've gotten red-eye bass with other red-eye bass in their, in their gut, <laughs> oh, um, man, yeah. with, with, with mice, mm-hmm. um, with little, like, you know, lizards and, I mean, you know, everything. Yeah. But I would say the most consistent items that we see in, in their stomach contents and in, in instances where we've, you know, looked at that, it's been crayfish and insects. So those are probably the two two top. So as bad as, bad as I hate to compare them to trout, would you compare them to trout in the way they feed and the way they're facing upstream, I'm assuming? Yeah, I mean, I would kind of compare them to trout in that, you know, 
in the way that you approach fishing for them, mm -hmm. like they're going to be because they occupy very similar, you know, reaches in the classic riffle run pool stream, yeah. you know, habitat. Um, you know, they're going to be holding somewhere where they feel safe that allows them, you know, food, but also they're not fighting the current and losing calories just to maintain their position. So, you know, if you're looking at a stream, you're going to look at pocket water next to a run, you know, behind a boulder or something yeah. like that, or in front of the boulder or in a pool under some, you know, canopy cover, you know, whatever bush or tree near the bank where there's, you know, a riffle or a run just up upstream of that. Um, so, I mean, they're, you know, they're going to be in a lot of areas where, the water is not necessarily, you know, super high velocity, but it, it's going to be near that. And so any kind of slack water areas near water with moderate to heavy flow, you, you know, typically that's where they're going to be hanging out. Mm -hmm. Now, will they move seasonally uh, trying to find, I'm sure they find different temperatures of water, but will they, I'm not talking necessarily about that, but will they move just say miles or are they staying pretty much in the same pools and areas throughout their life no i we that's another thing we've never really looked at I and mean, there's been some some studies that have actually tagged fish and followed them and for the most mm -hmm. part i mean they may, they may move a little bit up or downstream but i think in general these fish are kind of homebodies they yeah you know they just go deeper um you know in the winter time when the water gets colder they'll just kind of get up under a rock and just kind yeah. of not hibernate, but I mean, you know, fish are yeah, cold blooded. So, lethargic. you know, they, they become pretty lethargic during those colder water periods. Um, and they still eat, you know, people still catch them in the wintertime if you're willing to go out there and braid the temps and, mm -hmm. you know, dredge the bottom with a, you know, woolly booger or something. But I, you know, that time of year, I'm more concerned about hunting or yeah. something <laughs> else and, you know, wait until springtime before I start pursuing red eye bass again. You know, we done. Uh, I, I tagged tarpon for uh, the research lab here in South Mississippi, and we're doing acoustic mm -hmm. transmitters uh, now. We finally got the funding to do all that, and to watch how these tarpon move around is pretty eye opening. Because uh, we're tagging juvenile tarpon that are you know eight inches to you know twenty something inches, and they're hanging out all you know in the same place until they get to a certain oh, size, yeah. and they're gone, uh, and they're offshore. Right. So, yeah, just watching that, man, it's, that that stuff is, is fascinating to me because it lets you know what the fish are doing and how to pursue them uh, to catch them or, right. you, it, know, it, you know, and preserve them and protect the areas right, that they're yeah. going in. Right. Like you said, I mean, that's I think that's a big key that a lot of times maybe as fishermen we overlook um, is – you know, for the, for the longevity and protection of the species itself, you know, knowing where they migrate, if they migrate, mm -hmm. is really important, you know, kind of in that overall management and conservation plan I was talking about earlier. You, you have to be able to protect all those areas. So if you just, if you only look at them, you know, at one snapshot of their life cycle or, you know, time of year, you may think, oh, well, this is where they live, but you completely miss, you know, the next season when they migrate, you know, downstream or upstream into a different habitat. And, 
you know, that just gets left out. So I think it's important yeah. to be thorough. Um, I think it would be really interesting to, to do that. I've, I've actually talked to some folks that, that do that kind of research. Um, you know, just looking at, you know, not just the Talapusa where we've looked in the past, but maybe let's, let's tag some fish in the, in the Coosa and the Black Warrior and the Cahaba and let's see kind of what they're doing mm-hmm. in all these river systems because they're all different as far as, you know, number of dams and impoundments and things like that that might be barriers for, for potential migrations. Um, and that's the hard part, you know, now after all, all these years have gone by where we've, we've changed these rivers and streams so much with, you know, to, to suit our needs, which I'm not necessarily complaining. I like power. Um, <laughs> yeah. I like air, con- I like air conditioning and things like that. I'm just saying, you know, we've obviously changed things. And yeah. so, um, not knowing what they did before that, we're already kind of at a disadvantage. Maybe they've already adapted and changed, you know, with us once. And so now just trying to understand, well, what do they do now um, so that we don't further complicate their you know, life cycle and, and life history? So mm-hmm. that's all stuff that we, we want to know and figure out. It's just, you know, obviously funding and things like that to, to do those. Right. Um, so completely sort of switching gears. Um, let's talk about actually fishing for them and – Obviously, I want people to enjoy uh, nature and getting out and doing it. And the only way to get people to be able to help in the future is that they know about it and that they know how to take care of fish. So can we talk a little bit about fishing for red eye? And you can, if you want to jump on one single species, that's perfect. And just talk about, you know, what areas look for flies, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll talk in general because, I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be similar across all the species okay. um, of red eye bass. So uh, typically, you know, for fly fishing for red eye bass, if, if you're going to be pursuing, you know, just them, or at least hoping to pursue just them, um, I typically go with um, a two or three weight rod, just because that's what, what I prefer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a four or five weight, certainly fine. I, I fished with those a long time before I had smaller rods. Um, but the point is you you don't need a lot of rod for these fish. Yeah. Um, and you know, as far as flies go, um, I mean, my favorite is a, uh, a chartreuse boogle bug popper (laughs) just because they're, they're extremely durable. Um, and and, you know, I, I caught literally almost every red eye pass I've ever caught on one of those. Yeah. So it's a confidence thing for me. But I mean, realistically, any color probably works. Um, any, it doesn't have to be a boogle bug. It could be a bets or, you know, Orvis or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. But as, as far as top water goes, I mean, a popper is usually just a versatile fly to use because, you know, if you can dead drift it like a dry fly. And if they're not, you know, wanting that you can kind of get more aggressive and kind of pop it across the surface and make a lot of noise. You know, even if they're deeper in the water column, you can kind of sometimes lure them up with that kind of commotion. Um, so I like it just because it's versatile, it's durable, it's easy to see, you know, it floats all day. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, you could, you could take a, a caddis fly, dry caddis fly or, 
um, any other like classic trout fly, grasshopper pattern, whatever, and you can probably catch these fish. Um, but I prefer a popper. If if you're into you know throwing streamers, I mean, obviously these fish eat other fish too. So mm-hmm. um, any kind of basic, you know, streamer uh, such as like a clouser minnow or um, just any kind of bait fish uh, fly works really well. Crayfish flies work really well. One of my favorite is the uh, Whitlock near enough crayfish. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's just got a really good action, good profile. It's weighted. Um, and also Brandon Bell's up in North Alabama. He ties yep. some really great Panther branch. Books. You know, yes. Panther yep. branch. I mean, he Shout ties <laughs> uh, any of those, any of those things I mentioned, whether mm-hmm. it's top water streamers, you know, whatever he ties it. Also, one thing I always forget about, because I don't fish them a lot, but I have a lot of friends that do, are um, like dragonfly nymphs. Yeah. Um, and so those are really productive, you know, just dead drifted by themselves or you fish just a streamer or underneath a packer. I mean, there's a lot of ways you can fish them, um, but those are really productive uh, flies as well. Mm-hmm. And now, so, What size is a fly is, is typical? Um, I... When I'm fishing poppers, I usually go with a size eight. Mm-hmm. Um, a six is certainly doable. Um, I, I go with an eight because I like to exclude the panfish that are always nipping around at my fly. Mm-hmm. And so they may still like nip at it, but they can't eat it. Um, and even more so with a size six. But there yeah. are some smaller red eye that, you know, might not be able to eat a six that can eat an eight. So an eight's kind of a good, you know, middle ground that I like to use. Um, when it comes to streamers, you know, kind of the same thing. I mean, you can use a size four, size six, certainly catch them on those, but um, I usually like somewhere around a, a size six or size eight on average. Um, and then, I mean, the beauty of red-eye bass fishing or fly fishing to me is that you know, you don't have to have a vest full of flies and floatant and, you know, yeah. all these different tools and gadgets. Like, you literally could just have an Altoids tin with <laughs> a couple poppers and, and woolly boogers yeah. in there and a pair of nippers around your neck, and, like, you're good. Dude, you know, I'm, just go. I'm laughing because I've got, I've got so many Altoids tins that I've just put a piece of foam in, mm-hmm. and I've got the different colors, like the different flavors of how toys. I've got the colors for different right. <laughs> style flies. Yeah, I, and, and I've done that before because I'm like, you know, I'm not going to go buy a $20 fly. Because I've lost fly boxes before, too. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not going to go spend all this money when, like, that does the job. Um, because, I mean, you know, it's fly fishing. You can make it as simple or as complicated as you want. I mean, mm-hmm. you can go fly fish for red-eye bass with a – thousand dollar sage rod and you know five hundred dollar reel and you know the best gear that money can buy but i can fish just as good as you with a seventy dollar cabela's glass rod and an altoids 10 fly box you know the smiles are the same great about it (laughs) exactly it's it's just it's a it's a blue collar fish. It's not a highbrow fish, I think. Um, and so, it's 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 very accessible 
to to most people other than the fact that it has a very limited geographic range so mm-hmm. you know you've got to you've got to travel if you're not in their in their native range um I'm, I'm not sure where all our listeners are, but what the fish we're talking about is pretty much native to central Alabama and Georgia, and that's it. Yeah, they've got they extend a little bit into um, South Carolina with the Savannah River system. Okay, and, is that um, is that the Bartrams? With, yes. Yeah. Yeah, and then into Tennessee with the Coosa uh, River system with the Conestoga River. There's just like a little bit of a, a blurt that kind of goes up into Tennessee, but yeah, it's a very you know, above the fall line in, you know, Alabama and Georgia primarily mm-hmm. um, in, into these upper, you know, typically they're not in main rivers. I mean, in the Talapoose and the Cahaba, you'll catch them sometimes in the main river, but you know, typically these are up in the, the higher elevation tributaries to those river systems, um, you know, where there's a lot of, a lot of flow, a lot of bedrock, um, that's kind of the areas where they they thrive. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, so I, I guess let's talk about maybe the different species and what uh, watersheds they're in for anyone wanting to pursue. And this can be quick. It doesn't have to be like a. Oh sure. Yeah. So um, I kind of break them up by basins so like the mobile basin so if you're in alabama mm-hmm. or, or georgia um you you've got the in the mobile basin you've got the coosa river the Tallapoosa river which come together to, to form the alabama river um and you've got the black warrior river and the cahaba river and then kind of shared between alabama and georgia you have the chattahoochee river but i mean really red-eyed bass are only I would say present in any appreciable pure populations and size of populations kind of upper Chattahoochee, um, you know, up where you're going to start catching trout like in Helen and Dahlonega in some of those areas. Um, And then you've got the Altamaha bass or red-eye bass in the Altamaha drainage, Mm -hmm. um, which is a very small, small, you know, they're, they're, range is, is pretty small relative to all the other red-eyed bass and then you've got um, the Bartram's bass which are in the savannah river system and they're pretty well dispersed throughout that system I mean, you can catch them in the actual you know you know river and augusta uh close to the i-20 bridge and you know multiple places and tributaries to that that river system I, with my job, I have to go up to North Georgia uh, quite often, and I didn't even think about it until my uh, last trip, like in December. Um, I'm crossing, I'm going up 65 to 85 all the way to um, Athens. And so I'm passing mm-hmm. Bartrams, Altamaha, Chattahoochee, um, the Coosa, Tallapoosa. I'm passing all of these different ranges. And so I've made it my goal, like each trip that I go, I want to fish in at least one watershed. And I went for Bartram's right. in December and it was just cold. <laughs> was, yeah. I didn't have any luck. I had one fish hit and, uh, but I'm going to, I'm going back. I found a little tributary Watson mill state park. Uh, a lot of, Oh yeah. Yeah. Very, very beautiful, uh, park and easy to get to from what I'm needing. I've, I've got to get in there and fish quick, but, 
that's I think yeah. I'm gonna start with Bartram's and and work my way back towards Mobile. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think that you know really like May May through August is is probably the best time. I mean, you can catch them starting in March and April, just kind of depending on you know water flow and mm-hmm. depth and um, also you know temperature, but. I've certainly caught plenty of fish in April, but I, you know, typically I'm still turkey hunting then. So I, yeah. for me, it's kind of May through August, maybe into September. Some that's kind of the, the best time frame I have. I, I would say where you have the highest, you know, likelihood of catching these fish. Um, everything's kind of stabilized by that point, and you're mm-hmm. you know, getting a little bit less rain. Water temps and um, flows are a little more, you know, normalized. So. That's when I, I prefer to go after them. Yeah. So what is your favorite uh, species, I guess, to target? Mine's definitely the Kusa. Um, just because there's so many different places that you can catch them in that river system. So from, you know, like literal mountain streams to, you know, more like broad, like river systems. Mm-hmm you know, small and medium sized creeks, um, in canyons. I mean, there, it's just the, the diversity of habitat within that one system. And just, I like the way those fish look like they just, they're, they're so blue. They have some really cool red coloration on their fins. Yeah. Um, this, it's just my, it's the one I fish for the most. So, um, one of my favorites gotcha um and you you talked about the the chartreuse boogle bug being being your favorite fly (laughs) so what um your setups your two and three weight setups are you uh, tell me about your leader system and how how um what size tippet and all you're using yeah so i'm i I feel like i'm different than a lot of people because i haven't ever fished with anyone else that uses the same thing that I do, but I, I like furled leaders. Um, okay. you know, I'm, I'm not a tapered leader guy, uh, for anything I fish for. I've just never liked that. I like the furled leader because they're durable. Um, you know, they turn over flies like a popper really well. Mm-hmm. And typically they have a, a tippet ring on the end. And so all you have to do is just tie on new tippet. Whereas, you know, with a tapered leader, you're like blood knotting another section on. And I just, I don't have the time or the patience for that. So I, I like to just be able to just tie on new tippet. And so I use a furl leader, you know, typically it's a, I want to think like a six to nine foot, um, mm-hmm. furl leader. I don't make those. I buy them. So, you, I mean, you can just, if anyone's listening and, you know, wants to try those out, you can Google furl leader, um, and you can kind of buy it based on, you know, what, what you're fishing for or whatever. But, you know, they have loop-to-loop connections, so you loop-to-loop to your fly line. And, like I said, there's a either a loop or a tippet ring on the other end. Mm-hmm. And you just tie your tippet straight on. Um, and I typically – I don't even use, you know, quote-unquote tippet for red-eye bass. I'll use eight-pound mono okay, um, or flor- fluoro, but typically it's mono um, just because, you know – they're not leader shy. Um, and so I think eight pound is, is more than enough for any red eye bass you'll encounter. Um, so I typically use that and, that, and 
yeah, the, the boogle bug popper on the end. And, you know, that, that setup without me changing tippet or anything will last for quite a while. Okay. What are, what are some of the bycatch uh, that you get when you're targeting red eye? It really depends on where you are. I mean, if I'm up in streams that are just kind of, you know, predominantly red eye bass as far as bass species go, you know, you'll catch red breast sunfish, you'll catch mm-hmm. long ear sunfish, um, of course, bluegill. Uh, and those are the most common, you know, catches in in those kind of areas. Now, if you get down further where you've got some other bass, um, I mean, really and truly, I rarely catch largemouth just because of the type of the habitat that mm-hmm. I fish. But you, I will catch some Alabama bass and, unfortunately, some hybrids between yeah. Alabama bass and red-eye bass. Uh, if you're in some of those North Georgia streams, of course you can you can catch you know shoal bass on one cat one cast and a Chattahoochee bass on another cast, um, so that's kind of cool. Um, but I would say yeah, that's, that's probably the main main things you'll catch besides red eye bass, depending on where you are. Yeah. So you mentioned you'll catch some hybrids. Is there is there any way to tell visually uh, if what you're getting in your hand is a hybrid? Yes and no. So okay. we, we, we've actually did a paper where you, you can look at a fish and think it's pure, but it's actually hybrid mm-hmm. um, because it's back crossed. So it looks like one parent, but really has, you know, genes from both. Um, but there are some hybrids that are just obvious. So if you look for, you know, the diagnostic features of a red eye bass are, these white edges on the upper and lower margins of the tail fin, mm-hmm. as well as this little like crescent on the back half of their upper eye. It's usually turquoise or silver. Um, Alabama bass don't have that. No other bass have those things. So if you catch a fish that has those, you know, good chance are it's a red eye bass. Now, if you're wanting to look and see if it's a hybrid, you can look at things like the tail fin shape. So red-eye bass typically have these like real rounded edge, you know, lobe shaped mm-hmm. tail fins, whereas, you know, largemouth and Alabama bass will have these really angular kind of sharp point um, tail fins. You can kind of look at the shape and then you can look at um, the lateral line blotches. So, you know, largemouth and Alabama bass both have a, a pretty, you know, defined um, you know, blotch pattern along their lateral line where it almost looks like a solid line down their side. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas red eye bass, I mean, they'll have some blotches, but typically they're they're evenly spaced all the way to the tail. So if those blotches don't touch and they're pretty well spaced all the way to the tail, you know, it's a good chance it's red eye bass. If, you know, the most common hybrids that are obvious are you'll see like a very solid lateral line but you'll see the white edges on the tail fin and maybe a, a slight crescent above the eyes. And you're like, okay, this clearly is a hybrid. Mm-hmm. Um, and hybrids also get bigger. I mean, red eye bass, for those listening that, that may not know, I mean, they max out at 12 inches and, um, you know, around a pound. Yeah. The average size is much, I mean, that's like a unicorn. The, the average size is much lower. I mean, I would say eight, nine inches is a good fish. Um, and what you're primarily going to catch, you know, if you catch a 13, 14 inch fish, like my, my radar immediately goes off as like, nah, I yeah. don't think so. That's, 
there's more than likely some hybridization going on there. So, yeah, so, yeah, that's you. Um, in general, what I would use. Basically, if anybody was taking notes, you just got a cheat sheet for the WhatsApp Bass Wednesday <laughs> at the. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Well, actually, it's funny because a lot of those fish, a lot of those pictures that Steve uses on that, um, I supply and I, yeah. I supply. I mean, a lot of them he does too, but I, I've supplied a lot of them through the projects that we've done and also, you know, obviously all the genetic results just about. Yeah. Um, and so I, I kind of abstain from participating because I, <laughs> I always know. Yeah. Well, I, I don't ever comment because I don't want to look like an idiot because, <laughs> I mean, yeah, some of those fish right. are, are tough to figure out, like just visually. Well, there's sometimes I don't, it's ones that I haven't, you know, personally tested or know, and so mm-hmm. I'm not man I, I, i'm like you i'm like you know i know all this stuff about bass but i, I even more so i don't want to look an idiot yeah by getting something wrong right so, so uh, yeah man that's awesome um so about your book like tell me a little bit about what people can expect like if they go pick it up today like what can they learn about red eye out of your book sure um it's a it's a pretty quick read number one and there's a lot of pictures so that usually mm-hmm. uh helps picture books um, are awesome. but <laughs> yeah it's uh, you know I, I like pictures um <laughs> so it's it's not a very big book but it's it really is kind of a summary of like all that we we know about red-eye bass at least mm-hmm. when i wrote the book um kind of from the scientific angle and some of the issues that you know, or threatening red-eye bass as far as, you know, hybridization, some of the stuff we've talked about. And then, you know, just kind of goes through, you know, how to fish for them, you know, rod, line, lead, I mean, all that stuff, um, flies. And then there's a basically kind of a chapter on each of the native river systems, or at least a section, I think, mm-hmm. um, within a chapter on each river system. And, and some of the unique features of red-eye bass within that river system that differentiate them from all the others and also some of the you know maybe unique conservation threats in that river system facing those red-eye bass populations that that may not be you know facing red-eye bass in other river systems um so it's just kind of a broad brushstroke overview just you know really the whole point of the book was just to try to get people to you know, understand what this fish is and and why um, they're special, and the fact that we're potentially losing them in a lot of their mm-hmm. their native waters, and you know, kind of a, a call to arms, so to speak. Yeah. So where where can where can you pick the book up at? Um, the easiest place is. Um, on Amazon as, as bad as it pains me to say. Um, <laughs> I wasn't going to mention it cause I know they're not very good on their sellers. <laughs> but, no, yeah. they, yeah, they, they definitely, yeah. I lose a lot of money <laughs> yeah. um, with Amazon purchases, but that's fine. It's not ever, it's never been about the money with this book. Um, so Amazon's the easiest. Mm-hmm. Um, people can, uh, if you're local to an Orvis store, Orvis carries them in Alabama and Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's multiple fly shops across the Southeast that, that carry them. Um, so there's a good chance you could get them in a fly shop. If not, 
you know, sometimes people contact me directly. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can do that through my Instagram, which is just at red eye bass fly fishing. And, um, you know, we can work out, you know, shipping and all, cause sometimes people want to want me to sign it. And like, obviously there's only one way I can do that. And that's, you know, ordering it directly from sure. me. Yeah. Um, and so if I have books on hand, which sometimes I do, sometimes I don't, um, I can try to make that happen. But the Amazon's certainly the most convenient and by far the, the way most people buy it. Okay. So, so what's next for you? Um, you writing any more books or? Yeah. I mean, I've, before I actually started my PhD, I'd already started writing another book, which was fly fishing, Alabama. Okay. Um, so just kind of a, a very, you know, <laughs> large overview book, kind of, of, of all the different things you can fly fish for in Alabama mm-hmm. and how to pursue those different things. Um, I was probably a third to two thirds of the way of writing that before I started my PhD. And, you know, obviously haven't had a whole lot of time yeah. to get back to that. Um, so that's, that's one that, you know, certainly would be the, the first to come out when I have time again. And then, um, you know, one day I want to write a, another book kind of focused on, on black bass specifically, not a fishing book, just kind of a, you know, encyclopedic type, yeah. you know, sciencey book of just yeah. the, the history of black bass, you know, why they're an important game fish and, you know, all the different species about them and, you know, kind of just a, a good, you know, well thought out novel on the, on the bass itself. Okay. Now, I, this is a it's a little different different vein of topic, but I've read this a little bit online, and I found a scientific paper that suggests that um, Choctaw Bass Range may extend over into Mississippi. Do you have any thoughts or any mm-hmm. knowledge on any of that? Um, and I know we're changing we're changing species completely. I just <laughs> just wanted to pick your brain on yeah, that. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I've done some work on some genetic work on those because we have you know, the ability in our lab to determine if something's a Choctaw bass or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we've done some samples. I, I, I've never seen any samples come from Mississippi that, that we've determined to be Choctaw bass. Okay. Um, I guess, I guess it, there's a possibility, but, um, there's a big old drain. We really, that they got across to get there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we typically see, you know, Choctaw bass more in, Southeast Alabama, yeah, Northern Panhandle. Florida, you know, Panhandle, um, kind of where I grew up basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but there, I mean, just a fun side note, I actually just fished for them for the first time with my friend Clay Grace. Um, at some point I went home, I don't remember what it was for now, but I went home for the weekend, you know, told my wife, I'm like, look, I'm just, my dad and I are going to get away for a day and go, fish with clay mm-hmm. for Choctaw bass because I've lived here my whole life and never fished for them. And it's crazy. Yeah. Um, so we went and caught some and it was a lot of fun. I mean, very similar to red eye bass. Um, they don't get big, you know, they, they live in some really pretty small streams, usually associated with some sort of flow and, and rock. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was cool. It was cool to go almost like a homecoming, but yeah, for a fish I've never caught before. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm I'm right on the the state line of Mississippi and Alabama, and uh, just right up oh, the okay. road from my from my house, there's this little creek, and it's it's usually really clear. And uh, the other day, I, I caught a uh, a spotted bass in there that was very different than most other spotted bass. the The gap between the dorsal and caudal was like an inch and a half. And I text one of my mm-hmm. buddies, I was like, "Man, you ever seen a fish like this?" And he was like, "Dude, there's something wrong with that one. He's deformed." <laughs> <laughs> it was it's bizarre like how this fish looks like with those with the fins that far apart i've never seen that it's like a huge yeah. gap it's it was unreal but uh and and i i do a lot of research on the internet when i'm looking for new species to target and i'd usually wind mm-hmm. up on some kind of scientific page and i i ran into the the one about choctaw bass in mississippi a while back and i was like no i don't think so but <laughs> while i had a you know a, someone that does genetic research on the phone i wanted to check that yeah, out yeah so. i mean i would never say never because you know we we know better than to, to do that we've been wrong so many times so I, mm-hmm. you know i don't tell people like there's no way or whatever but i, I can just say that at least from the samples that i've tested in that mississippi you know, area, um, they did not yeah. come back as Choctaw bass. Now it could be that they're a totally different genetic signature that yeah. we haven't accounted for. And so that's why they didn't, you know, so there's, right. there's always a possibility. Uh, you know, it's just not, they're not the same as what we see yeah. in, um, South Alabama and North Georgia. I mean, North Florida. Yeah. It could be as different as the Tallapoosa and the Coosa bass. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, so any, any closing thoughts you want to, you want to get out, maybe, uh, conservation minded for sure. Um, just, I mean, just encourage people to, to be active on the waters that they recreate on. Um, you know, most water systems have a, have a river keeper, um, you know, Coosa river keeper does a lot of great stuff in Alabama as far as, you know, kind of being a voice for fishermen but also just anybody that enjoys clean water, which should be all of us. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, get, get involved and be passionate about the resource that you use. Um, you know, <laughs> buy fishing licenses. You shouldn't be doing that anyway. Right, but, um, <laughs> yeah. You know, encourage your non-fishing friends to buy one because, you know, those, those dollars are, you know, 100% goes into, you know, conservation and, and, funding for projects like what I'm working on mm-hmm. in Alabama um, and also determines the size of, you know, the cut they get from the federal um, money for conservation. So license sales, you know, dollars and just numbers are very important in conservation. So um, yeah, just, I mean, those are the, the easiest things. And then, you know, if you're, you know, interested in volunteering, multiple organizations picking up trash which are is also unfortunately very yeah. common along a lot of rivers in alabama yeah um you know just trying to you know anglers have to be the voice that you know kind of the loudest voice i think to protect these resources because it's something right. we directly enjoy we're the ones that are on those waters you know seeing the issues and so instead mm-hmm. of just you know clamoring for someone else to to do it you know let's be that voice and let's do it ourselves so absolutely so so how how can people follow you do you have uh what are what are your social handles uh 
so I can see what's going on. Um, I mean, on Facebook, it's just my name, Matthew Robert Lewis. And then on um, Instagram, it's just at Red Eye Bass Fly Fishing. Um, I don't really do anything else okay. uh, social media-wise. Those are kind of the two, two that I concentrate on. Okay. Well, man, um, I, I got to tell everybody, go check out the book. It's literally titled Fly Fishing for Red Eye Bass. And talking about Google search magic right there, man. It's like the first thing that comes yeah. up. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And, man, I, I want to personally thank you for the work that you're doing for, you know, the resources that, that I love and that, you know, I want around for my kids to enjoy as well and my grandkids. Um, and without people like you, man, it wouldn't be possible because <laughs> Alabama, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, i so, love it i love what i do yeah well awesome man it was it was so awesome to talk to you and uh again man thanks so much and guys you've been listening to the brackish fly good vibes tight lines and god bless